the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hi, I'm Hugh Hewitt. Thank you for listening to the Town Hall Review Podcast, where we bring you the best voices on the stories and issues that matter. Our podcast is brought to you through partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy and ADF, the Alliance Defending Freedom. Here's a piece yours truly hosted, and I hope you will enjoy Capitalism in America History is the brand new book authored by Alan Greenspan and Adrian Woldridge. Of course, you know Alan Greenspan as the legendary chairman of the Federal Reserve from 1987 to 2006. What you may not know is he's a brilliant writer, and this sweeping history of capitalism in America is really a book I have been waiting for for decades. Mr. Greenspan, good to have you. Great to have you back on the Hewitt Show. Good morning. Good morning. I am curious as to why, after such a storied and distinguished career, you would undertake. This had to be a lot of work. Capitalism America is is large and long and great, but it had to have been a lot of work. It, it was a lot of work, but you have to understand that for economists like myself, it's a learning experience, and I'm always trying to get new ideas as to how the domestic and global economies work. And uh, as a consequence, when you do that, you're, you're creating the basis of a book. And I've had uh, several books, but they're all not as books per se, but basically it's my ongoing day-by-day analysis. Well, I've got to tell you, Mr. Chairman, I, I've been teaching law students for 23 years, and I've always longed for a book that could explain to them the underlying economic dynamism that has birthed the constitutional order and regulatory system we have. I finally got it, and uh, I thank you for that. They're going to have to read this now in every class, and they're going to love reading it because they'll finally have a grasp of how we got here. I always begin, how did we get here? And we got here because of capitalism. Is that a fair statement? That is an exactly correct statement. Okay, so I'm going to cover with you a number of subjects because the book begins at the beginning and ends at the present day. But I want to stop, uh, start at the end because it's kind of dark. Uh, America's fading dynamism. And I quote from page 396. Winston Churchill once said to his fellow, country, fellow countrymen that we have not journeyed across the centuries, across the oceans, across the mountains, across the prairies, because we are made of sugar candy. But Alan Greenspan writes today, thanks to a malign combination of litigation, regulation, pedagogical fashion, sugar candy people are everywhere. Uh, can you expand on that, Mr. Chairman? Well, uh, it's basically inbred into the American psyche. In fact, that's what defines us. It's the entrepreneurial spirit which doesn't exist in its form any other place in the world. And when you go back and you look at history, it is just awesome. I mean, I learned more about American history uh, writing this book with Adrian Wooldridge, incidentally, who I, I don't want to leave out of the loop because he's critical factor here and the, the two of us uh, worked uh, uh, pretty much uh, picking up the periods going from colonial um, America and, and Plymouth uh, all the way through to the current days 
fact, we even have it perhaps tomorrow when it was a forecast. Uh, well, the triumph of capitalism is maybe my favorite chapter of 1865 to 1914 and the repudiation of laissez-faire. But at the end, your tone is not optimistic, Mr. Chairman. Well, it's not optimistic because there's a single statistic which I find terribly worrisome. And that, uh, hoping not to get too complex, uh, the data on gross domestic savings and government social benefits or entitlements is remarkably stable, implying that uh, one is driving out the other. Oh. And, and it's not credible that uh, uh, the economy as a whole is being affected, but it's perfectly critical, credible if you think in terms of uh, what basically entitlements are. They're actions in, implemented under government edict and have, therefore, of necessity, if you're trying to figure out who is doing what to whom, and you find out that the sum of two as a percent of GDP is remarkably flat since 1965, then you conclude of necessity that uh, it is entitlements which are driving out the savings. And then I go further into the analysis and demonstrate that as savings fall, uh, we borrow from abroad, and we're now, I might add, have had an $18 trillion debt to foreigners. And uh, the combination of, of, of that is uh, you basically are crowding out uh, productive capital investment. That does come through. And indeed, in your analysis, along with uh, Mr. Woldridge of the Great Recession and the, quote, recovery that followed it, it really did put into stark terms that the 10 years after the panic have not been eras of dynamic capitalism, nothing like the previous American recoveries. But I was curious about the current situation. There was an argument that Donald Trump's election unleashed the animal spirits again. Now, you're a student of irrational exuberance, a student of bubbles, but this doesn't look like a bubble to me. Does, does the current period of vigor in the economy look like a bubble to Alan Greenspan? Well, it would if it were done in a different manner. That is, I find that the particular tax cut that this, this administration initiated uh, is one which does unleash capital investment and hence productivity and hence standards of living. The only problem is we're not paying for it. <laughs> <laughs> yes. As a result, if you, what you're seeing now is a dramatic rise in federal debt to the public. And uh, nobody cares about federal debt to the public. It's not a political issue until it ultimately engenders inflation. And, and always has in the past, and there's just no question that we continue with the excess spending that's involved here, that it will reemerge in the future. And you do warn about stagflation at, at length and about bubbles returning. I have to ask you about one headline from this morning before coming back to capitalism in America. And by the way, America, you can get it today at Amazon.com, and you will read it in three days. Um, it's that good. Fidelity says it will trade Bitcoin for hedge funds. All right, Alan Greenspan, what do you make of cryptocurrencies in our current market situation? Well, you have to 
understand what is a cryptocurrency. And uh, the best way of doing it is the first cryptocurrency I know, uh, which relates to the world at large, was the Continentals, which were issued in 1775 to fund the war. It's paper money, and paper money goes on, uh, has no backing to it. And as a result, what happened in 1775, uh, through uh, when the the, uh, uh, whole structure of finance uh, fell apart, uh, is that fiat currencies don't exist indefinitely unless they're backed in some prudent fiscal way. It, uh, Bitcoin is a fiat currency, meaning that there's one factor involved in this process, which, uh, which is where the value of Bitcoin comes from. And that is uh, when you have a fiat currency, it's either a plus, meaning uh, uh, a plus addition to finance, uh, or zero. You can never have a negative value for a fiat currency. And so the result is if it's never going to be negative to the extent that it is positive, since coming down from the par value to originally, as in the continentals, to zero, uh, there is purchasing power implicit in that. And uh, General Washington was able to procure a goodly part of the substance needed to finance the Revolutionary War uh, with a depreciating currency. But until it depreciates to zero, it still has a purchase. It still has purchasing power. And if you add them all up over the years when it's in existence, the net effect is it's positive. And that is basically what Bitcoin is. It can never turn negative and so long as it's positive, it's just a question of how positive it is. And uh, I don't want to get into the psychology involved in, in how people trade Bitcoin, but it's a, it's a, it is a fiat currency. It does seem awfully bubbly to me, Mr. Chairman. I read with interest about the greenbacks and about how the Lincoln treasuries uh, financed the Union Civil War and the Confederacy badly financed theirs and what happens with these currencies. But I am I'm alarmed by the frothiness implicit in the Bitcoin bubble. And I'm also alarmed by two things that you write about at the end of capitalism in America. One is that American mobility is crashing. And you write about Andrew Carnegie was a penniless immigrant. John D. Rockefeller was a snake, son of a snake oil salesman. Ray Kroc came out of nowhere. But now it is almost impossible to imagine that kind of rise, except we just saw it in the Silicon Valley. So what is it that is contributing to the lack of mobility that allowed previous titans to rise? Well, the lack of mobility is a result of uh, an extraordinary statistic, which is the fact that the sum of uh, gross domestic savings in the economy and entitlements as a percent of GDP is remarkably flat from 1965 to yes, And that necessarily means that one of those two categories is crowding out the other. 
And it makes no sense other than to say it's entitlements, because entitlements are built in, their, their own purchasing power, so to speak, is built into the process, uh, whereas the economy adjusts accordingly. And what the data do show, if you go in further detail, is indeed that uh, uh, entitlements are crowding out gross domestic savings, which is the, that plus the savings borrowed from abroad, which is where that $8 trillion comes from. The sum of the two uh, is equal to gross domestic investment. So uh, the reason we're, uh, there's an overhang of concern and stagnation is we are still uh, we're still retiring the baby boom generations, and will be and for years. Yeah, and will be for years, and that means entitlements, unless they are financed, will create a problem. Well, uh, let me ask you about this. Is, is there something? That we have not yet discovered some way to finance. You know, California has got you know, hundreds of billions of dollars in unfunded pension liabilities. Everybody's got unfunded liabilities out there. Is there something that Alan Greenspan thinks might be the solution to this? Some sort of massive refinancing of America's collective debt, uh, sort of into a sinking fund in the way that Young Pitt did during the Napoleonic Wars? Is there some way out of this? There's no shortcut. Unless you repeal double-entry bookkeeping. <laughs> All right, let me ask you about another problem. And this one I have brought up repeatedly, even though I'm a conservative. Concentration of wealth is deeply disturbing. You write on page 399, uh, there are reasons for deep concern. Companies are protecting themselves from competition by building all sorts of walls and moats. This is particularly true of the tech giants. They are using network effects to dominate markets. The more people you have in your network, the more valuable those networks are. Now, I am an investor in Amazon. I always declare that. He's, I'm very happy with Jeff Bezos, but I am aware that Amazon is creatively destroying everything that comes under their shadow, Mr. Greenspan. Is that a good or a bad thing? It's called creative destruction, and it's good. Because remember that the reason those things are destroyed is there are better ways of doing things. And the whole process of capitalism, critical to the earliest days, is the same process we're observing today. And it's called, it's called by Schumpeter, uh, it's creative destruction. And it's no different now than it was back then. It's a function of human nature and, uh, I guess, engineering and physics and a few other related sciences. But it's, a, it's something that has always been going on. But the process at the end of the day is good, not bad, even though there are losers in the very definition of creative destruction. The reason that, for example unions, labor unions, arose during the 19th century is to try to protect uh, working groups against the, uh, the forces, the gale forces, as Schumpeter called them, of creative destruction. And they succeeded in part and not in other parts. Yeah, in, in your assessment, your account of the Great Recession, you very bluntly point out where Wall Street became hypnotized by ever more complex financial products and that 
the bankers themselves did not understand what the quants were doing. I am now worried, and I wonder if you share this, Mr. Chairman, that we have very little idea of what the algorithms being developed in Silicon Valley and abroad are doing to us, to our finances, and the acceleration of risk into the system. Do you worry that black swans might begin to arrive in flocks? Uh, no, it's a stint. this is exactly what creative destruction looks like. I mean, there's always the, the destruction part, which is actually clearer in many cases than the creation part. It's only in retrospect that the net effect has been positive. But they're very, it's very obvious that, uh, I mean, for example, we're now confronted with a critical problem of pollution. I mean, how to finance that, how to prevent it, and do you, how, do you, how do you wish to, uh, do you want to build dikes uh, as the Dutch did in centuries past, or do you want to basically uh, let the markets function? And if you're, going to, if, you're, if you're going to stop the markets from functioning, you will eliminate the problem but you'll also stall the economy. Right. And there are a lot, there are tens of billions of people who want air conditioning. There are tens of billions of people who want to rise from poverty, and that requires carbon. And I, when you say let the market work, would a carbon tax interfere, or is that actually the most efficient way to cope with it, Mr. Well, Chairman? Well, if you're going to have a tax, uh, that's the least worst type of tax. And uh, I've always, in a sense, generally supported it. When financing, when the alternative was to print money. Agreed. Now, let me ask you about President Trump. You have served so well so many different kinds of president. This is a very different president. Never held public office before. He is a real estate developer, and I used to work for them when I practiced law. They all have the same sets of characteristics. They become what they need to be in whatever room they are with whomever they are with in order to get the deal done. Is he good or bad for American capitalism? Well, both. Uh, he, uh, in initiating the, the tax cuts, uh, did the very important thing by cutting marginal rates in the corporate area, which is politically incorrect, but from the point of view of creative destruction and growing output per hour at its productivity, that's exactly the way you want to do it. The problem I have with his fiscal policy is he's not funding it fully, and uh, that's uh, the critical issue. Uh, a tough uh, policy is one which understands the future and doesn't uh, c cut it off. Uh, my concern, basically, about what's going on today is uh, it's not only the United States, but it's you know it started visually with Brexit in London. Uh, when uh, immigrants showed up on the streets of uh, London, and that presumably, as a number of people have said, is what caused uh, a reaction against foreigners. And that led ultimately to Brexit. And uh, the best way of putting it is that what causes that is that the slowdown in productivity growth because of the crowding out of, of, uh, of private savings, what causes that uh, is engendering a much slower rate of, of GDP growth. In other words, standards of living are growing much less 
rapidly because productivity growth has virtually ground to a halt. It used to be 2 or 3% a year. It's now down under 1% a year. This is why the, the regulatory revolution is, in my view, so important. But before we run out of time, I'm talking with uh, former Fed Chairman Alan Greenspan about his new book, Capitalism in America, co-authored with Adrian Woldridge. And it's really a remarkable read. I have to finish on China because last Thursday for MSNBC, I sat down with National Security Advisor John Bolton. Previously, I had sat down with Mike Pompeo. They are both talking in terms of China, which are very resonant with your attitude, which is it has taken an unfortunate uh, direction away from Deng Xiaoping's approach that President Xi is abandoning the rule of law and that they're becoming not a a good operator for the world economy or for the United States. Can you expand on that, uh, Mr. Greenspan? Yeah, you have to remember that uh, in the 1990s, China, working off Deng Xiaoping's general philosophy, had gotten to the point where Zhuangzi, uh, who was the prime minister at the time, uh, coupled with his boss, Zhang Zemin, uh, were seeking to replicate in China what the United States economy looks like. And they were doing it r- remarkably effectively. And the real surge in Chinese advance in per capita GDP and in productivity occurred in that particular period. And uh, as a chairman of the Fed at the time, I, obviously I dealt fairly closely with uh, both, uh, uh, I would say, both the prime minister and the president of China. And it was remarkable. Uh, they knew more about American free markets than I thought most Americans had any notion of. Something happened at the end of that period in which the subsequent turn of... Remember, as we went from Deng Xiaoping forward, that became increasingly liberal and progressive. Yes, rule of law was taking root. Exactly. And uh, something happened, and it's not visible what it is, but the prime minister and the president in subsequent periods was far stopped the, in, the improvement, so to speak, from a point of view of somebody who believes in free markets. Uh, and uh, as a result of that, uh, things stagnated in part, but most importantly, uh, President Xi, uh, Xi rather, uh, is really a throwback. As soon as I saw that they had eliminated the automatic 10-year turnover and he did not have a successor, I said, something fundamental has happened here. And I think that, remember that China is, per capita GDP, is still a third of where it is in the United States. But unless they can reverse themselves and go back to... uh, 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 some of the very classical uh, policies of free markets, which the Chinese were initiating, and in many respects doing better than we. Uh, so I, I don't know what happened in the closed doors in the Politburo, but something fundamental happened, and they've shifted back in time 
not obviously back to Mao Zedong, but uh, they've shifted back in time. And uh, China, remember, still has only a third of the per capita GDP of the United States. It's far removed from where we are. Uh, we, uh, we in, say, 1960, was where China is today. Wow. Well, let, let, let me wrap up, Mr. Uh, Chairman. You've been very generous with your time. Capitalism in America is a wonderful read, and I will, my law students are going to love it, and everyone who's listening are going to love it. But I, I wanted to ask you to look backwards, if you could, and tell me after all the research that went into this with Adrian Woldridge, which secretaries of the Treasury do you most admire for helping to build this country? Alexander Hamilton. Ah. Uh, can you explain why? Well, basically, he set in motion uh, what we now have in the financial system. He Remember, he was working out of an agrarian economy and uh, was always debating with Thomas Jefferson, who believed that the ideal society at the time and the latter part of the 18th century was an agrarian society uh, with very little implicit economic growth built into it. He remarkably foresaw the type of capitalistic expansion that was involved and implicit in the Constitution, uh, the United States Constitution. And the result of that is uh, just to be seen in the data. It is. So my last question, can the, can this century be another American century, Alan Greenspan? We have this amazing growth GDP right now, but there will be bubbles, there will be recessions, there will be panics, there is China. But as you look out over the next hundred years, I, I, don't, I don't know whether or not you think we're going to have another American century. Well, uh, what we say uh, is that uh, if reforms are made, in other words, if we replicate what Sweden has done with respect to entitlements, since they had, they were running uh, under the worst conditions, they developed an economy which had interest rates of 500%, and inflation was out of hand, and they made a number of adjustments, which we discuss in the book, uh, which brought Sweden back uh, out of the, the depths. And they're doing very well. They're at the, close to the top of the productivity growth rate now. So uh, we suggest two major changes in policy, which, if they are implemented, uh, will get us back to where we were and where we want to be. That is one of the great reasons to read Capitalism in America. Take a minute and just give them a, what are those two great changes. The entitlement reform is one. Well, entitlement reform basically is cut the well, everybody knows what entitlements are. Entitlements are, unfortunately, have turned out to be the, uh, the basic political issue of the moment. And uh, for a good amount of time now, uh, you, you're running for office and you try to uh, cut entitlements, you lose. Now, the problem is these entitlements are entitlements. Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, etc. Would, wouldn't be a problem if they were funded, but they are not. And I think the statistic which I find most worrisome 
is that the actuaries of the Social Security system in the most recent annual report uh, on page uh, 299 or something like that, way in the back of the book, say that essentially we're not actuarially funding the entitlements we're creating. And uh, we, the problem with that is uh, you cannot go on indefinitely by creating something out of nothing. Yeah, that's the bottom line. Well, uh, Mr. Greenspan, Capitalism in America is a terrific work. I appreciate your spending this much time with me. Congratulations to you and Adrian Woldridge, and I look forward to having you back sometime. Thank you very much, and I'll convey to Adrian your your remarks. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review. Our program is coming today in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. It's America's most unique graduate leadership programs offered on Pepperdine's breathtaking campus in Malibu, California. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. If you enjoy your podcast, take a moment, tell a friend to subscribe today. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.